This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Leading New Testament scholar, Dr. Craig Keener, is widely respected for his thorough research, sound judgments, and knowledge of ancient sources. This commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians features Keener's meticulous and comprehensive research and offers a wealth of fresh insights. It will benefit students, pastors, and church leaders alike. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network and New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Craig Keener about his new commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Dr. Keener is FM and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is the author of 25 books, five of which have won awards in Christianity Today. Keener is also the New Testament editor for the award-winning NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. Keener is the editor of the Bulletin for Biblical Research and in 2018 served as the vice president of the Evangelical Theological Society. With more than a million copies of his books in circulation, Keener also serves the global church by teaching and lecturing all over the world. Dr. Keener, welcome to the show. It's, it's great to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you. I, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. When I was young, I was interested in everything in the ancient world, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, uh, Roman history, I mean, just everything except the Bible. Uh, I just stayed away from that because I figured, now that's what that's what Christians do. I was an atheist, but then I met the Lord. <laughs> he, uh, a couple people came to me on the street. They witnessed to me. I argued with them for forty-five minutes. Walked home, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, not convinced by their arguments, but confronted by God Himself and the Gospel. Well, after I became a Christian, I, I had to catch up. You know, the little kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did. So I started reading 40 chapters of the Bible a day uh, eventually and realized you can get through the New Testament every week or through the Bible every month if you do that. But what that did, it, it gave me a sense of the flow of context. And eventually it gave me a hunger to get the background uh, for what was going on that, you know, the the, the writer didn't have to state because the readers already or the hearers already understood that background, for example, the language. So some of what I'd learned from Greek and Roman and and so on studies was very helpful. But um, I really needed to pick up on the Jewish materials. And uh, anyway, that was I I just developed a, a deeper and deeper hunger for the Bible. I'd wanted to be an astrophysicist before, which I think is a great thing, but it was because I wanted to learn about truth, and I figured that studying the universe was a way to do that, and, and that's undoubtedly true. But once I found out that the Bible was God's Word, I said, no, I need to really immerse myself in, in this. Um, I, can, I can learn about eternal things, about, about God and, and His plan for us and all that. So 
that became my focus and eventually I didn't have time to do other things in addition. So, um, yeah, that's a short version of how I got interested in. Wow. Studies. Yeah, that is very interesting. And so now you have, you have come after quite, you know, a good amount of experience writing books and biblical studies. You have, um, written this amazing commentary on, the book of Galatians. And so for this interview to, to overview your work, I've prepared questions about texts and topics of interest that you treated in your commentary. So let's begin um, just by getting a sense of like, how did you come to write this work and what inspired you to, to um, treat this book? Ben Witherington. Ah, no, uh, <laughs> that's a really short answer. Um, I well, I just love the Bible. I, I I'd love to do, you know, to dig into anything in the Bible. But with um, I was going to do Romans, and you know, I, there was there were things in Galatians I didn't understand. I didn't understand how some of his arguments in Galatians worked with some of his arguments in Romans, or you know, if he had rethought some things, or you know, what what was going on. And so I, I was interested in Galatians and. Um, ben was uh, is the editor for the Cambridge New Testament Commentary Series. He invited me to contribute a commentary on something that hadn't been done for them yet. And so I said, well, how about, I said, either Galatians or First and Second Thessalonians. And he said, okay, I got somebody else in mind for First and Second Thessalonians, so why don't you do Galatians? And that narrowed it down. I am so glad that I did Galatians because well, it's really going to help me when they do Romans. I understand Paul's argumentation a lot better. I understand uh, a lot a lot better um, his his passion, and I understand Galatians a whole lot better. There were so many things that I loved in Galatians, and so many things I didn't understand, and feel a lot more at home in Galatians now. Right, absolutely. So. Um, as you, you know, contribute this work, um, what methodologies set this commentary apart from other commentaries on Galatians? I wrote, the, the commentary I just mentioned was with Cambridge. This one's with Baker Academic. And so there's nothing really in the methodology that sets them apart from each other, except that one is more complete and has, you know, the bigger one, the Baker one has all the references. Um, the Cambridge when I needed to keep it shorter. So, uh, but what sets it apart? I mean, I think most scholars use similar methodologies. I mean, we're we're concerned about literary, seeing how the the book fits together. We're concerned about uh, the context of Paul's thought um, in New Testament theology. We're also very concerned with the context of the setting that he was addressing, uh, both narrowly insofar as we can reconstruct it, and that, that can be problematic, and, and more widely in terms of what we can understand about the Greco-Roman world, about Galatia, and and um, about different, different expressions of Jewish thought at that time. So um, I guess where what sets mine apart isn't the methodology per se, but just that I have so much material from the Greco-Roman world and from ancient Judaism 
by which I can augment what's been done before. Not, not replace it, but supplement it with, um, you know, building on what's been done before with a lot of new information. Right. Right. And the more that we understand the historical background, you know, the more I think the, the message becomes clearer. And so if you had to boil down what you think the main message of Galatians is, how, how would you tackle that question? Jesus. Uh, I mean, that's the main message of the New Testament, right? But um, Paul, Paul has to contextualize that message for a particular situation. Uh, his, his message is that it's Jesus plus nothing. So if you're following Jesus, he's not saying no good works if you follow Jesus, but he's saying the good works flow from your relationship with Jesus. There's nothing that you do. There's nothing that you have, nothing you bring to the table, whether it's your ethnicity or your, or your works. Um, different scholars are focused on different aspects of that. But none of that that we bring to the table is what puts us in a relationship with God. It's just Jesus. And so I guess I could say it's encouraging to, to see that the deeper you dig, um, the, the more uh, clear that central message becomes. And the, the going in deeper also helps you understand, obviously, a lot of the, the details along the way that aren't so clear. Uh, figuring out some of some of his arguments, but in in the case, go, go, go ahead. Oh well, uh, yeah, no, I, I was just going to say that, like in um, so in, in dealing with what Paul is concerned with in in his message to um, um, to the Galatians, um, what do you think? Um, what do you think that we can establish about Paul's opponents in Galatia? Like, do you think that? Um, we have kind of a clear understanding of of their message and what Paul was um, trying to make clear and combat against. To to some extent, I mean, you can you can go to town reconstructing with guesswork and and make too detailed a reconstruction. And scholars have warned against excessive what they call mirror reading in that respect. At the same time. Uh, I mean, clearly he's dealing with opponents. He <laughs> mentions them. Uh, he even, uh, yeah, in, in uh, 512, he even has a nice little, um, well, I'll, I'll go into that later if you want me to, but he, he he's, he's very unhappy <laughs> with what his opponents or his rivals are doing in Galatia. There's, there's some possible debate as to how much his opponents or rivals knew that that they were his opponents. They obviously knew they were his rivals, uh, but you know they they may think you know that they're uh, improving on his message or supplementing his message, or they may think you know well Paul Paul just didn't tell you the truth. He watered it down. It does seem that they challenge his apostleship. He wasn't one of the original twelve. Paul. Paul in his writings uses the language of apostle in a much broader way than you have it, say in the Gospels and, and usually in Acts, apostles refers to the twelve, but Paul uses it in a wider way. And in Galatians, as in 2 Corinthians, he seems to have to defend his, his apostleship and the nature of his apostleship. Um, he seems to have to show that, no, he didn't get everything 
directly from the Twelve. He had his own encounter with Jesus. So he goes into detail on that and is very emphatic about that and even says, you know, God is my witness. So it sounds like he's responding to a, a challenge on that. Um, he, he appeals to a consensus with the Jerusalem church, which I think he's, he's going over the opponents' heads because they seem to claim, you know, hey, we're from Jerusalem. We have this, this message. This is what we really teach in Jerusalem. Well, it's what some people were teaching in Jerusalem. It wasn't what it wasn't what everybody was teaching, and so Paul uh, appeals to the fact that that uh, James, the leader of the Jerusalem Church at the time in Galatians two, and Peter and uh, John, son of Zebedee, that these were the, uh, the the top three, so to speak. They were the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, and they blessed his ministry to the Gentiles. They they treated him as an apostle of the Gentiles, just like Cephas, Peter, was to to the Jewish people. Didn't mean that there was no overlap or anything, but you know, Paul's message to the Gentiles was approved by the Jerusalem church. But Paul speaks of some people who uh, tried to worm their way in and tried to uh, impose circumcision on Gentiles. And what he describes there in Galatians 2, I think, is probably also what we have in Acts 15.5 from a different perspective. But even though, you know, Luke in Acts 15, he's very, um, well, Luke likes to show the, he's writing from a long-term outcome perspective he likes to show where there was consensus and so on. I think, yeah, there was a consensus in Acts 15, but I don't think that the people who disagreed with that consensus automatically said, okay, yeah, well, we agree with it. I think they probably just went back to trying to convince people of their ways. At the time that the message was sent out from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it was sent to Syria and Cilicia. Um, so it suggests. And also, we, well, we know from Acts 15 that they had gone as far as Antioch. It seems likely that they had uh, not gotten to Galatia yet. But Galatia is just over the Taurus Mountains. But, uh, th- this is on the South Galatian view, which is the majority view today, um, mainly because of archaeology showing that North Galatia really didn't have that many people to evangelize yet. But um, just over the Taurus Mountains from Cilicia. So if if the kind of people who were requiring circumcision of Gentiles were already in Cilicia at the time of Acts 15, it's not surprising that they'd be in Galatia soon after that. And Paul uh, Paul needs to address their, their issues. They, they, I mean, Paul and they would have agreed that the that the Torah, the law, was inspired. They would have agreed that it was God's word. But they probably disagreed on a couple major issues. One is, do Gentiles need to keep the law? Well, they would have agreed, um, most Jewish people, at least, well, especially in the diaspora, outside of the Holy Land, most Jewish people believed that Righteous Gentiles could be 
saved, so to speak. They they could you know have eternal life uh, in the world to come, provided they just kept certain basics like no idolatry, uh, no sexual immorality. Of course, they believed this wiped out the vast majority of Gentiles. But if they wanted to become part of God's people, now for that, they had to be circumcised. And people who, some people think in very uh, binary terms. So going from that to saying, well, they're not even saved, uh, I think we we see people do things like that today, from saying second-class citizens to not even Christians at all. Paul has to combat uh, that attitude that these Galatian Christians are second-class Christians or possibly not even Christians at all unless they accept circumcision. And uh, certain things that Paul believed, you know, if you have the Spirit, you belong to the, you, you've already received the mark of the new covenant. So circumcision isn't bad, is, is a mark of the covenant. It's just superfluous because you have the reality to which the old mark of the covenant simply pointed. I'm, I'm, I'm talking too long, but anyway, you, you can see how Paul and his uh, rivals would come into a great deal of discussion that was um, very divisive. Right, exactly. And so in, in dealing with you know his opponents, then one of the, the main topics that is talked about in terms of the content of Galatians is the uh, the Pistis Christu debate. Um, and you render that as faith in Christ um, from Galatians 2.16 and 3.22. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain how you handle the subjective versus objective genitive uh, debate and maybe what contextual factors persuade your reading. Sure. Now, this is one of the, well, as you said, it's one of the bigger debates in Paul and not without some good reason. Uh, a number of significant scholars have, have been on both sides of the debate. Um, of course, uh, Karl Barth was one of the uh, subjective genitive uh, readers in the past uh, century and a half or so that, that really brought things to the surface in terms of the faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ. Uh, his, uh, Marcus Bart also um, my friends Tom Wright, Richard Hayes. Richard Hayes really uh, uh, pushed pushed that forward. That seemed to be really trendy when I was doing my doctoral work, and I, you know, I wanted to be in on the trend. But um, I, I really tried to make it fit exegetically, and I know people have have worked out ways to make it fit exegetically. But it just seemed to me the more natural way that it fit in its context. Uh, the different contexts was uh, not the subjective genitive of the faith of Christ, but rather the objective genitive of faith in Christ. Maybe I should um, say something here about the subjective and objective genitives. In 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 Greek, uh, genitive can mean a variety of different things. I, I met somebody years ago who was saying that, you know, the Lord will come with ten thousands of himself. We will all become Christ, because in Jude it says the Lord comes with his myriads. And 
of course, I knew what he was doing. He was using an interlinear, but he didn't know Greek grammar. It says myriad too, myriads of him. That just means his myriads, <laughs> his ten thousands. So um, it, it can mean uh, belonging to, but it also it can mean belonging to in all sorts of ways. So it can mean if you have uh, pistis Christu, faith or trust or faithfulness, there's a variety of ways to render pistis. Um, Christu, of Christ, it, can, it just means faith having to do with Christ. It can mean faith in Christ. It can mean Christ's own faith. Uh, it can mean faith produced by Christ. Um, the, the grammar doesn't distinguish all that. So if we want to make a distinction about what he means by faith having to do with Christ, we have to make it on other criteria besides simply the grammar. Most of the church fathers seem to have taken it as faith in Christ, which is also how most translations take it in these cases. But there are there are significant arguments for taking faith of Christ, uh, which again is how you know Tom Wright and some others take it, uh, Richard Hayes takes it, and that is that uh, you, you have an expression like that in Romans 3 where it's uh, faith of God. It doesn't mean faith in God in that context. It means God's faith or, in that context, God's faithfulness. You have a similar construction with uh, Abraham's faith, which doesn't mean faith in Abraham, but it means you know, Abraham's faith. So those things, if I just had those things, it would incline me towards the subjective genitive reading. What inclines me more towards the objective genitive reading with, say, um, uh, E.P. Sanders, who was, uh, I was his TA for a while, but we hadn't talked about this back then. E.P. Sanders or, or James Dunn or, or, or um, Doug Moo or, or others. What inclines me more towards the objective genitive reading is that you never have Christ as the subject of the cognate verb pistuo. I mean, it doesn't talk about Christ believing. It talks about Christ and God as the object of faith. And also, you have contexts where you have uh, both the noun and the use, the, the, the noun and the verb used together, apparently interchangeably. Now, uh, supporters of the subject of genitive reading say that is, um, you don't want them to be redundant, so they have to mean something different. But it seems to me that instead what you have is repetition. Galatians 2.16, you have a threefold repetition of a couple different kinds. And and so I think it's there to reinforce it, and and therefore I see it as referring to faith in Christ. Now, in the end of the discussion, I think that we don't want to make too much of it theologically, because the whole reason that we can have faith in Christ is because Christ is faithful. the The language of faith, um, or, you know, in English we don't have faith as a verb, so. We end up separating believe and faith. Maybe trust would be something better. We trust in Christ because he's trustworthy. He's absolutely reliable. He's, so when you have people saying it, it refers to the faithfulness of Christ, or you have people saying it refers to our faith in Christ, well, our faith is in Christ because Christ is faithful. And I don't think 
I, th- I think theologically it should come out pretty close. That um, I think that Galatians, like Romans, Paul doesn't speak of faith as merely an abstract intellectual exercise or merely a passive nominal assent. You know, well, what religion are you? Well, I guess I'm a Christian. I was raised not not like that. Um, that when he talks about faith, it's something you stake your life on. And so, <clears throat> also, even though theologically people may distinguish justification from regeneration, I mean, biblically they happen at the same time. <laughs> so, if if we are counted right before God, forensically. Uh, legally, right before God. I mean, when when God says, "Let there be light," there's light. So we become a new creation. We become part of the a foretaste of the coming new creation. And so there's a big debate as to whether dikaiosune uh, means forensic justification or righteousness. Whether dikaiao means uh, pronounced righteous or made righteous. Um, if you're just dealing with the verb, normally the verb has to do with the legal uh, setting. But then if you're dealing with the noun, it often has to do with the moral. But I think with the whole context of Paul's teaching, if nothing else, what you get in Galatians 5 and 6 about the transformed life, if we are acquitted before God, he also makes us new so that we're able to do righteous deeds from a heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells. So it becomes the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. And I'm, I'm running running all ahead, but just, just to say that theologically, the, the gulf between those who speak of faith in Christ and the faith of Christ may not be as great as the grammatical debate about which way to take the genitive. Yeah, yeah, and I was so glad that you handled that and, and treated that really well uh, in this work. And I think it it proves to be a very helpful um, kind of summary of the debate. And and you then show how it, you know it functions in Paul's logic. Um, so speaking of genitive, uh, you take ergon namu as law works um, in Galatians two sixteen and then three two five and and ten. How do you think that this term functions in Paul's overall argument? What is he referring to by what you render law works. Yeah. When I, when I say law works, it's just, I mean, you can still say works of the law. It's just trying to recognize or underline the fact that when we have a genitive, it means works having to do with the law, but it doesn't specify what the relationship is. So that has to be determined again by, by the context. Now, a, a big debate has been whether Paul refers to all the works of the law, or he's referring to what are called identity markers, that is, circumcision, food laws, and holy days. And today, even though you still have the debate, in a sense, it's really moved towards more of a consensus. that This isn't as live a debate, I think, as the Pistis Christu debate. The um, the issue of whether it's all the works of the law or only certain presenting issues that are the main issues Paul's dealing with in Galatia, a number of scholars, as I recall, Wu and Schreiner, who argue 
you know, it's all the works of the law, will say, well, but yeah, but we agree that the presenting issue in Galatians is is especially these issues. I mean, circumcision was the big issue that Paul really, starting in Galatians five, just really uh, hammers on as this is what his opponents are trying to do is the the mark of the covenant. And you know, Galatians chapter two, eating with Gentiles is obviously uh, a major issue that Paul brings up. So. Uh, at the same time, James Dunn, who is primarily identified with this view of, you know, well, the main issues are are circumcision, food laws, and holy days. He has clarified in, in recent writings, he's saying, I was never saying that it wasn't all the works of the law. I was just saying, these are the presenting issues. So it doesn't sound like it's a it's a major conflict between some of the major writers in the subject. Um, and I think Dunn also had a point. When I first read his his Romans commentary, I was like, yeah, I, I agree with this in Romans 14, because I had already noticed that as I was reading ancient um, Roman comments on ancient Judaism. And here were the three things that they made fun of Jewish people for. And, uh, well, the ones who were anti, anti-Jewish that they despise Jewish people for circumcision, food laws, and holy days, and the way that that plays in Romans it makes makes good sense that these are the highlighted issues because these are the ones that they felt were really really weird. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, when when Paul speaks of uh, <clears throat> works of the law, you know the Old Testament may not have the phrase that exact phrase, but it has a cognate about doing the law, which means pretty much the same thing. And there it refers to the whole law. And 4QMMT, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that has been brought into the debate, probably also means the whole law as well. So I think probably it means the whole law, but there's certain issues that are at issue there in Galatia. I also think it's important to keep in mind that the reason that Paul is speaking of the law at all is because it's the issue. Paul is not against the law. He's not against the Torah. He cites it as authoritative. Uh, in, in Romans, where he's not battling for the lives, the spiritual lives of his converts, uh, where there's not the same polemical edge, the situation's different, Paul says, you know, the law is holy and just and good. And he's very careful to qualify. The problem isn't the law. The problem is is flesh. We we don't keep the law. And and even in Galatians, I mean, he says, if if a law could have been given that would have brought life, well, that would have worked, you know, but but that wasn't, it couldn't happen. We can't be saved by the law. Luther applied that to legalism in his day. And, you know, the new perspective has argued, well, you know, this isn't dealing with medieval, the medieval church. This is dealing with, um, you know, Jewish-Gentile relations. I think they're both right, but they're, you know, it's a question of application. Luther was applying it to other kinds of legalism. Hey, look, if we can't be justified by God's own law, we're not going to be justified by anything else either. Um, if if 
if Christ is the only way of salvation, if, uh, you know, Paul, Paul would say if, if um, keeping the law that God gave his people can't save us, he obviously wouldn't believe that following Roman gods would save us. <laughs> he obviously wouldn't believe that um, any other religion would save us. Or even Christianity as a religion would save us. It has to be Jesus that saves us. It has to be faith in Christ. Um, but at the same time, there's also the issue, um, because he's dealing with circumcision and food customs and so on, these were the things that made, these were the kind of barriers that Gentiles had to cross to become Jews. And Paul is saying it's all right for Gentiles to remain culturally, ethnically Gentiles. They don't have to become um, converts in the traditional sense to Judaism by being circumcised. They they already become God, part of God's people because, and it's been confirmed by the reception of the Holy Spirit, which uh, in the prophets like Ezekiel 36 and so on, that was to be poured out on God's on God's people in the time of the end. So the fact that they have the Spirit means you know, they're inwardly circumcised, as Paul says in Romans. So he's not against the law. He's, he's against imposing the law on Gentiles. And he, you know the law is still useful for moral instruction, but it kind of requires distinctions to be made looking for, for principles, how they, they apply. Um, I deal with that more in my that chapter in Spirit Hermeneutics about how Jesus' interpretation of the law and Paul's interpretation of the law work. It's not that the law is bad, it's that um, the way it's interpreted and the way it's applied needs to be handled differently. And I think we're going to talk later about the law of Christ, and so maybe I'll save more of that for there, but um, yeah. Well, that's actually my next question. Okay. But, but, <laughs> so you, but also, you keep answering. Yeah, but also the the issue of of ethnicity. I mean, even even in Romans, years ago, before I heard anybody talk about the new perspective, just looking at Romans. I mean, the Jewish Gentile issue is so so major there, and and then you get to chapter fifteen and kind of a climax. He gives this litany of. Uh, verses from the Old Testament about Gentiles worshiping God. I mean, it's it's clear that there's a Jewish-Gentile uh, issue in, in uh, Paul's theology in Romans. Um, I think it probably relates to the situation in Rome, like it relates to the situation in Galatia, but I don't think... Um, either way, whether you, whether you related to the situation or not, Clearly, there's there's this Jewish Gentile issue in Romans, and it became clear to me that this has implications, which eventually the new perspective has has fleshed out in terms of of ethnic reconciliation. Because if God would summon His people to surmount a barrier that He Himself established, namely between Jew and Gentile, how much more ought we to surmount every other barrier? So. I think that uh, Luther's uh, application to self-justification by any other means than Christ, I think that um, the new perspectives, uh, 
emphasis on, well, we're not justified by our ethnicity. We're not made superior by our ethnicity. I think both of them are drawing on uh, real principles that are there. But ultimately, as I said at the beginning, it comes down to it's through Christ. And we don't add anything to make it to make it more. Yeah, exactly. So then uh, moving to the, the phrase law of Christ, you list 10 major views. Um, how do you interpret this phrase contextually, especially in Galatians 6.2? Uh, I love I love that. I learned so much as I was going through that. And actually, the 10 major views, they're not all mutually exclusive. A lot of them can be complementary, uh, not with an I, but with an E, like they complement each other. Uh, is they, they can work together, some of them. So in the context, Paul cites some teachings of Jesus. So a lot of people think, well, this is probably related to uh, Jesus' teaching, the law of Christ has to do with the new law that Jesus laid down. And you can get some support for that also in a particular teaching of Jesus, which you have in Galatians 5.14. In Galatians 5.14, Paul speaks of the heart of the law, the fulfilling of the law, as loving your neighbor as yourself. He also says that in Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. Also, you have that spoken of as the royal law of liberty in uh, James chapter 2. And also, uh, you seem to have it implied in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Anyway, all, all that to say, you have it in a lot of different strands of, of early Christian thought. Of course, in uh, in 1 John, it's, uh, you know, the the new commandment is like the old commandment. Now it's love one another as Christ has loved you. So it's, um, you know, even a higher standard, the example of Christ of laying down your life for one another. I think it goes back to what Jesus taught. Uh, of course, in John 13, we have what Jesus taught among the disciples. But in general, we have in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? This was a debate among uh, schools of Pharisees in this period. And he says, the greatest is, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And connecting those two was natural. You've got vayahafta uh, in Hebrew. So you, you know, they both start the same way, you shall love. And this this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, it becomes the dominant ethic of all of early Christianity, which is significant. I mean, Judaism really heavily stressed love. The only the, the first person we know, though, who uh, other than Jesus, who who ranked love your neighbor as yourself as the first or second was Rabbi Akiba, who's like probably toward the end of the first century. And and you never have another movement where that is like the, the central feature of ethics. So uh, the, the way you did in the early Christian movement. So it's like there, there was unanimous agreement on this. This is the, this is the center. So I, I would argue that that goes back authentically to Jesus so when Paul cites 
that is the fulfillment of the law. It makes sense. Uh, and Chris Matthew 22 speaks to it that way as well. It makes sense that he's referring to the law of Christ's teaching. Well, others look at, you know, bear one another's burdens uh, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the immediate context. Well, that sounds like uh, Christ bearing the cross for us. It sounds like what Christ has done for us. And so they cite Christ's example. Now, I don't think those are mutually exclusive at all because obviously uh, Jesus' example was consistent with his teaching, and that can be shown in a number of ways. So those two views, I think, are compatible. Also, in the further context, Paul goes on to speak of how we fulfill the righteousness of the law. He doesn't word it the same way he does in in Romans. Like in Romans 8.2, the law of the Spirit of Christ uh, in us is freed us from the law of sin and death for what the law couldn't do in that it was weak on account of our flesh. Uh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and and as a sacrifice for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that uh, we, we could walk in the righteousness of the law in our hearts because of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, he, he, he words it in a different way in Galatians, but it's so beautiful the way he does it. So Galatians 5.16, he says, This I say then, if you walk by the Spirit, you will in no ways at all, it's a, it's a double negative, which in Greek doesn't mean it refutes the negative, in Greek it means it's really emphatic. <laughs> There's no way at all you'll fulfill the lust of the flesh. They're totally incompatible. You either walk in the Spirit or you walk in the flesh. Uh, you, you, won't, uh, yeah, you, won't, you won't be uh, doing the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, at the same time that you're walking by the Spirit. Well, this language of walking can mean a lot of different things, but in the Old Testament, God often spoke of walking in His commandments, walking in His laws. And in Ezekiel 36, God would write his commandments in our hearts so we could walk in his walk in his ways. So if you walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 518, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, and, and that's also kind of a walking image, uh, like, like when the pillar of fire led Israel in the wilderness, and they were, well, some of them may have been riding, but most of them were walking. Um, we we are led by the Spirit. He says, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. And he, he mentions this in Galatians 5.23. You know, there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. There was a common understanding among many thinkers in antiquity that you don't actually need a law if you're so righteous that your your life would be like a law itself. And some people cite Aristotle, but it wasn't just Aristotle. It was all over the place in, in antiquity. And Paul, Paul says the Spirit fulfills that. And, and, you know, he's got Ezekiel 36. He doesn't quote it there, but it's pretty clear he's got it in mind in Second Corinthians 3 and, and elsewhere. Uh, I think Romans 8 and so forth. And then he goes on in chapter 6. And he speaks of, uh, if, if anybody falls, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I think that's probably referring to 
the Spirit who produces gentleness. Uh, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit in, in 522. And uh, speaks of those who sow to the flesh versus those who sow to the Spirit. And uh, later on in chapter 6, which makes sense, it, it continues the image of the fruit. You know, you, you sow to the flesh, you get the works of the flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you get the fruit of the Spirit. And this uh, law of Christ, then, I think, has to do with you're, you're not under the law in terms of trying to achieve righteousness or trying to prove that you belong to the people of God or anything like this, but rather the, the righteousness of God's heart that's also embodied in the law is, is present when God's Spirit is in our hearts. And so if we truly follow the Spirit, it's, it's, it's going to fulfill the law. Now, of course, people can take that in all sorts of ways. People can get subjective and say, well, the Spirit's leading me to commit adultery or something. Um, Paul, in other passages, is very, very clear. No, there is a content to this that is consistent with the moral standards of the law. But at the same time, uh, Paul, that's not the issue Paul has to deal with in Galatia. The issue that Paul has to deal with in Galatia is the, um, you know, people who are just trying to nail it all to what you can do by your own self-discipline in terms of keeping these commandments. If you're, if you're from Jerusalem and you've grown up and this is your culture, you're used to keeping all these commandments. It's not that hard, but for a Gentile who hasn't grown up with this, it becomes a means of works righteousness. And Paul has to show, no, it's not, it's, it, we, we don't do that by our own strength. It's, it's what God does in us. We need to trust in the one who's trustworthy, not just for our initial right standing before God, but that's also what produces the right living. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a very helpful way to put it. Thank you for breaking that down. I know that was a is <laughs> quite a, a long um list of things to cover, but yeah, this this commentary is an amazing work. Um people from lots of different um traditions and, and in different positions in ministry, I think will be be very helped by it. Um would you just say in closing want to share with your uh with our audience about what you're working on next? Sure. Um, the the next book that should come out is one on um, ancient biography in the Gospels. Of course, Richard Burridge, long ago, uh, precipitated a sea change in scholarship in terms of recognizing that the Gospels, in terms of ancient genre, ancient audiences would have recognized them as closest to biographies. But scholars have often not develop the historiographic implications of that. And so in this book, uh, which should be out, I think, in a few months, I uh, work through some ancient biographies and, and what we can know about them and show that, you know, they, at least in the, in the period of the early empire, this wasn't, always, there was, this wasn't true with the earliest biographies or the latest biographies, but in the early empire, biographies were meant to be historical works. So not necessarily the way we write history today, but the way they wrote history back then. So we should expect to find a lot of 
historical information, at least what the writers believe to be historical. And of course, that has uh, implications, especially when you take in, into account that the Gospels are written within living memory, you know, with, within a couple of generations of, of Jesus' ministry. But then uh, what I'm working on also, there's a Cambridge is doing a, a one-volume version of my Acts commentary uh, with the blessing of Baker, and that should be out maybe next year. There's also a, a collection of studies on Acts that I've done that should be out, I assume, next year. There's also um, what I'm actually working on at the moment, because it usually takes a year for these things to come out, at least but after you finish them. Uh, something on First Peter. I was at a, a, a conference at Lambeth Palace where some Anglican scholars and some some others of us were were gathering to discuss First Peter, and I and I really got excited and said, "Hey, I've got all this background information. Why don't I?" So I'm kind of putting my my information in that together. It's a short commentary, although it won't be um, it won't be like the Galatians one where I engage all this. Well, engage most of the secondary literature. Um, It'll just be if if I didn't have to catch up on the secondary literature every time I could write so fast. But anyway, and the, and and also uh, starting a commentary on Mark that I'm really looking forward to. I'm learning so much about Mark and learning so much about the Gospels that I hadn't already learned. Yeah. Well, you keep writing and we'll keep reading. Um, thank you so much for your work and especially for donating your time to us today. Um, very glad to, to talk through your work on Galatians. Um, and so thank you for listening to this edition of New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read.